0: Thank you for listening to the Sharing Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharingChurch.com. Now, we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. If you're going to grab your Bibles or continue in worship through study, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. Um, don't be scared by my voice. I'm fighting allergies terribly. Anybody else fighting allergies? Golly, it's awful. I don't I never i never had allergies before. I grew up in Florida so I think the salt water, and we didn't have this yellow snow from the sky. And so we didn't have white snow either. We didn't have any snow in Florida. Uh, and man, it's got me this year. So <clears throat> I'm gonna try to I'm gonna I'm gonna work through it together. We'll get there together today. If you're like me and just the sound of my voice grates on you, I'm very sorry. I'm going to do the best I can today. John 14, we're continuing our series uh, through the book of John. And so we're getting there. We're entering um, what's now called by most scholars the farewell discourse of Jesus. Uh, John 14 through 17, parts of 18. It's where he's really letting his disciples know um, that the end is near of his ministry. And what they've experienced, everything is shifting and changing now. And so that's where we're going to pick up here uh, today. Uh, Kaysen is our middle child. Kaysen, um <clears throat> is, he's just, he's just so much fun. He's different uh, than our other two. He's just, he's creative in just weird ways. He's just, he's a lot of fun. Um, but something Cason hates is having his teeth pulled. He hates his teeth falling out of his head. He hates it. Uh, he has a tooth right now in the front of his head <clears throat> that is not vertical, it's now horizontal in his face. His lip has learned to like go around that tooth and it's just, it's just sticking out there. I mean, it's, it's out there. And I see it and I love pulling my kid's teeth. Anybody else love pull? I love it. <laughs> Maybe I'm the weird one. I love it. I, I like the feeling of accomplishment. And so it's just an immediate gratification of I worked and here it is. I did it. I did this thing. I like the, the sound it makes. I like the feel of it. <laughs> I'll stop. I, I enjoy it. So for the past week or so, every day I get home from work, I'm like, Cason, today's the day, man. Let's get that tooth out. And Cason, um, in his 50-pound frame of an almost 8-year-old, is like, all right. And so then he gets in front of me, and I go to grab the tooth. And he's like, nope, not today. Not today. And he backs up. He says, like, "No, I'm just, I'm just scared. I just, I just don't want to. And so we've tried Nerf bullets. We've tried shooting Nerf bullets connected to his tooth to get it out. We've tried everything. Um, it's there. So listen, if you see him today and you just want to bump into him real fast, it's fine. I won't call anyone. Uh, if that tooth comes out, I'll even give you some of the money that he'll get. It's fine. Um, but the, Kason has this, he has moments of courage and then overwhelmed by fear. It's a, it's a glimpse of, okay, I can do this. And then it's just crushed by, yeah, but what if? So He wants the tooth out, but to get the tooth out means he has to go through just, I mean, a minor amount of pain. At this point, it may just fall out by itself, but a minor amount of pain to get to that result. And that pain is enough for him to stay in the state that he's in. And I think that's true for a lot of us. I think there are ways that um, there's something we have to move forward on, some place that we have to go, that we have to take steps into. And we have the moments of, okay, I can do this. Today's the day that I'm going to have that conversation. Today's the day that I'm, uh, I'm going to bring this up. Today's the day that I'm going to uh, take this leap of faith. And then in a matter of seconds, it's the darkness of fear just overwhelms us. And it's because, uh, like Kason, there's evidence to us of this is not always going to be pleasurable. We all have stories. We have life experiences that tells us, no, no, pain is real and darkness is real. And I can't, uh, as much as I want to avoid it, maybe I can't, but maybe this time will be different. We have experience that tells us that maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's not going th- worth going through that to get to the end result. We're going to pick up here in John chapter 14. and In John 13, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet but in the midst of this Last Supper, in the midst of the Passover feast, Jesus has dropped some news to them that has radically shifted their perspective on the world. Everything was great with them. Three and a half years they've been following Jesus. And sure, there's been moments of like, I don't know where we're going to sleep tonight. And will there be enough food? But what they've, what they've garnered through the experience is they've seen miracles happen. They've seen blind men be given back their sight. They've seen lepers be healed of a disease. They've seen a man crippled for 38 years, given the ability to walk. Most recently, they saw a man dead for four days, raised from the dead. The trajectory of their um, experience with Jesus has only been going up. It's only been up at this point. I mean, they're at the pinnacle of ministry. They've come into Jerusalem through a lot of fanfare. Um, It's it's the season of Passover, which is a great remembrance of the people of God, of what he has done to set them free. They are on the mountaintop. They're riding high on these experiences. And it's this week then that Jesus brings to their attention what they have heard for three and a half years but haven't put together, that all of this is leading to him being the Passover lamb. All of this is leading to him giving his life for the sins of the world. And that time is here. But the problem for the disciples is they didn't see it coming. Because it wasn't like things were trending downward. And this was the logical next step was, you know, I I mean, I guess it's time, right? Like, we don't have anything else to do. It seems like no one's paying attention. It seems like uh, people have given up on the message of Jesus. That's not true. Everything has been trending up. And the rug has been pulled out from the disciples now. Jesus has said, I'm not going to be with you forever. In fact, I'm going to lay down my life. And then in the midst of that, he says, oh, and by the way, of the 12 of you, one of you is a liar. There's one of you that you have grown in relationship with, that you have given grace to and forgiveness to, one that you have tried to love the best way you can. Some you've been able to naturally, some you've had to work through, and he hasn't meant this. And he's, he's, he's the one who will betray me tonight. And then he tells Peter, the one who the disciples expected to be the one, right? He's, he is the one who um, answers first, who acts first. He, he, he's the cream of the crop. He's in the inner circle. And Jesus tells him, you tonight will deny even knowing me three times. So the cliff has come, and they're falling now off of this cliff. The rug has been pulled out from under them. But it can't stop here, right? Jesus can't leave them here because there's work left to be done. And there's work left to be done for him in the next few days, but there's work left for the disciples to do over the course of the rest of their lives, for the next 40, 50, 60 years. If they give up now, if they give up now, we don't have the Bible. If they give up now, we don't have the New Testament. If they give up now, we don't have this very book that we're reading right now. If they give up now, you and I aren't here today. This is important for them. And sure, there's coming a season of pain. But on the other side are things that they can't even imagine. But we can relate to them in the fact that when this has happened for us, has this ever happened for you? The rug been pulled out from underneath you? When it felt like things were going good, is when things actually ended up being the worst times of your life. We can relate to this. And you get all the pithy promises of, hey, yeah, but God is working and you're going to see the benefit on the other side of this, and that's great. But then the question for us in the midst of darkness is, yeah, but what if I don't? What if I don't? What if my story isn't your story? What if, what if I don't get healed from this cancer? What if it actually leads to my death? Then, then what? So they can't see the other side, but Jesus has to get them there. And it's the same thing for us. Even when we can't see the other side, he has to get us there because he knows more than we do and he has to get us there. So that's where we pick up here in John chapter 14. They're in the upper room where they've had this Passover meal. Jesus has arranged through a series of connections to have this meal up there. Um, Interestingly enough, this upper room most scholars believe is the same upper room the disciples would find themselves in in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descends. Same room. And we're going to see in the midst of this passage that the disciples feel safe here. The moment they step out of this room, all hell is going to break loose. And so they're going to fight to stay here as long as they can. So in the beginning of John chapter 14, after Jesus has just dropped this news, particularly as mentioned to Peter, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows, Jesus says in John 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Which is a lot like trying to tell your wife, hey, just calm down. Everything's fine. Have you ever tried that, husbands? Has that gone well for you? Hey, baby, just settle down. Everything's okay. Jesus says, hey, listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. Which feels... um, It feels pithy. It feels weak. It feels shallow. Like, you just told me this is all over. You just told us that this is ending. You just told us that everything we thought you were, you aren't. And now you're telling me not to let my heart be troubled? Like, don't be upset. Don't be anxious. Don't be startled by this. How can I not be startled by what's just happened? And then he adds this statement on. Believe in God. Believe also in me. These disciples, most of them would have been raised as good Jewish boys. So they would have been taught to believe in God. Now, we've done a real disservice to the word believe, in that um, we've used the word believe to say believe in God and also uh, believe in Santa Claus. Now, I don't know where you stand on Santa Claus and your belief there, but I'm gonna, there's some work we have to do in between these two things. And so what happens for us is when we say believe in God, we think, oh, yeah, like I I believe, I believe there is a God. I believe that he does these things. I even believe that a long time ago this thing happened. That's not belief. Belief, particularly here in this passage, is trust. It's not some ethereal, I have belief in some thing. It's a trust in a person. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust God, and now trust me. It's that scene from Aladdin, where Aladdin is on the carpet, and he comes over to Jasmine, and he leans over, and he says, do you trust me? This is what's happened. Jesus is saying, okay, it's dark. It's going to get darker. And the way through it is trust. Do you trust me? Trust God, trust me. And then he goes through chapter 14, and he gets to the end of John 14, verse 31, and he says, rise. Some of your translations say, come now. He says, rise, let us go from here. Come now, let us leave. What he's going to do in the rest of these verses, in 31 verses, is he's going to try to move them from the paralysis of fear into the courage of action. Because their tendency, like ours, is just to stay where it's safe. I want to stay where it's safe. And they're going to fight for safety. And Jesus has to get them to 31 of, listen, we've got places to go. He has to move them from the upper room and the sweetness of the upper room, the safety of the the upper room, to the sorrow of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's no easy task. He's going to do that here in these next few verses. So let's go back up into verse one. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled, but trust in God, trust also in me. We're going to notice a disconnect for the disciples that they viewed um, God and the Son, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, completely separate. And Jesus is doing some work now to realign their view of what we call the Trinity. So believe in God, trust God, trust also in me. And here's the evidence he's going to give them to trust. Verse two, in my Father's house are many rooms. Some of your translations say, in my Father's house are many mansions, or there are mansions. That's an unfortunate translation of that word. And it's built a really poor understanding of heaven for a lot of us. Because when we think of mansions in heaven and we compare it to our three-bedroom, two-bath house built in the 60s. Heck yeah, I want to heaven. The word here is rooms, and the idea um, is that a, um, a patriarch of a family would have his home, and then um, if he had money, if he was wealthy, he would allow his children and their children and their children to build houses onto his house, which Praise the Lord is not not how it works for the rest of us, uh, but that's how it would work for them. And they would build it almost circularly around the courtyard. And so they would have their own rooms, but they would all share a common meeting space together. So Jesus says, believe in God, trust God, trust also in me. And now he's going to direct them to what is at the core of their fear, which is you're going to leave us. He says, trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. God has plenty of room for us. I'm not leaving you. If it were not so, what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you, I wouldn't be lying to you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." Jesus is going to move them from the safety of the upper room to the sorrow of Gethsemane. He's going to do so by reminding them of his presence. Our hearts are hardwired for the presence of God. All the way back to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden. We were created, mankind was created in the pure presence of God, that he walked in the garden with them in the cool of the day. They had conversations with him. This is how our hearts were born, is in Eden. That's home for us. As humanity, Eden is home. We have a desire to be back in union with God in his presence. Now, we don't know that. We don't say that. But that's what's happening in all of our hearts. That's that's what's driving us to get acceptance from people. That's what's driving us to feel peace. That's what's driving us to feel safe and comforted and feel loved. It's because we have this innate human desire to be in the unadulterated presence of God. I don't know what your hometown is or where you're from, but there's always a place for you that you call home. Uh, No matter when you live there, it's home for you. And you might have lived in Henry County for 40 years, but wherever you lived when you were five to eight years old, that's home for you for some reason. Meredith, my wife is from Texas. And so everybody knows Texans, there's no place like Texas. Texas is home to to Meredith. It's it's where her heart, it's it's Eden to her. If we can just get back to Texas, then I'll be with God, right? Because God's in Texas. Jerry Jones built him a place and he lives there. This is where God is in Texas. It's the desire of us that there's no place like home. This is where we desire. And so Jesus is telling them, what you're afraid of is that I'm going to remove my presence. And I'm telling you, I will go away. But I'm doing so that I might bring you with me, that where I am, there you may be also. Then verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. Okay, we're going to hit now. Three disciples ask questions. And they're the same questions that we ask in the dark. They're the same questions that we ask when the rug is pulled out from under us, the questions that we ask when we're in the safety of the upper room, knowing that Gethsemane is coming. We have questions. Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas speaks up and says to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So therefore, how can we know the way? Like he says, you you just now told us where you are going, but we don't know where that is. But you've told us we know the way. How can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? So the question that we ask is, okay, we don't even know what the end looks like. How am I going to make it through? Even if I knew what the end is, would I even know how to get through it? If I knew that the end of this darkness is light on the other side, I don't even know how. Like, how do I begin to take steps in there? When that diagnosis is dropped, when that betrayal is revealed, we say, yeah, but I don't don't even know how to step in that direction now. What that is, is that's us clamoring for don't make me. It's better here. And Jesus says to him, No, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus answers this question in a statement. The Father is where where I'm going, and I am how you get there. So when Jesus says you do know the way, the point he's making is you you know me. I'm the way and the truth and the life. Verse 7, if you had known me, That's an intimate. If you had intimate knowledge of me, you would have already known the Father. You already would have known the end. From now on, you do know Him and you have seen Him. I want to be clear. I am Him. In seeing me, you've seen Him. In being with me, you've seen the end. In uh, in being with me, I've shown you both how and what we're going to. You've seen them both. Well, then Philip asked another question. Philip. Okay, Lord, then show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip says, well, well, then it's easy. Then here's the shortcut. Just show us God then. Just show us the Father, and that'll be it. Then we'll be done. Isn't this us too? Like, then give me the shortcut. Like, if, if that's all it is, then let's just do that now. Let's just make all of that happen now. Let's skip through all the pain, skip through Gethsemane, and let's just just arrive there. Don't make me go through all of it. Then just show us the Father. Show us it now. Isn't there a shortcut? Is there a way to this without sorrow? And this question is the one that leads us into all sorts of sin. But then Jesus responds to Philip in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We are um, eternally united. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So he says, there's two ways you can believe that I am in the Father. You can believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You can believe based on my words or Just believe on account of the works themselves. I don't care, but you've seen both. You have what you need, is what he's saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. It gets better, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, In my name, I will do it. How do you know I am with the Father? Because I can grant you the desires of your heart. I can do this. If you love me, look at verse 15, you will keep my commandments. Some translations say those who love me keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So now Jesus is going to drop the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk more about in John 16. But he's going to drop this you need the presence of God. It's coming in a way that you would have never, ever imagined. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you to be loved by another father. That's, he knows that the core is the fear. The fear for us in the upper room when the rug has been pulled out from under us is, But what if you leave? What if you go to? What if you aren't who you say you are? Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know, you will be intimately acquainted and know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Iscariot, which is a very important distinction here. This is another Judas um, who is one of the twelve disciples, which again feels like God, you could have picked other names. Like this. There's two, there's another Jane. Like I don't, there could have been another one. Anyway, this is Judas. Um, Some Um, gospel authors call him Thaddeus. This is Judas, not Iscariot. So he asks our third question. Okay, Lord, but then how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? How will you reveal yourself to us? How will you make your presence known to us but not the world? How will you make yourself known to us and not the world? The question Judas is asking is, how is this for my good? How do I know that you see me, though? Like, I get that maybe you'll reveal yourself to the world, but that doesn't help me. Do you see me? Like, how do I know it's for me? How do I know that what you're doing isn't just something that you have to do because you are God, but that it's for me? How do I know? How do I know that you aren't just giving me some kind of Hallmark card? How do I know you're not just offering up prayers and thoughts? Like, how how do I know? This is the question a lot. Of, okay, God, well then, do you see me? Like, I get who you are, and I get that you have power, and I get that you're good, but like, do you see me? Is this personal for me? Are you good to me? Is this for my good? For me, how do, how do I know? Jesus answers in verse 23, here's how you'll know. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That word home is the same word used in verse 1 for rooms. We will make our rooms, we'll make our abode with him. But whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. It says, you want to know how I'll know, or how you'll know? Because you keep walking in obedience, and you will feel my presence, in a way that's unique to you, in a way that's particular to my people. This is how you will know. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's such grace for Jesus to know that I know you're probably not understanding all that I'm saying to you. I'm sure that in the midst of your grief and your sorrow, you're really not computing all that's being said to you. So listen, the Spirit is coming, and He's going to remind you of this day. He's going to remind you of the things that I've said to you. Then He says, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. I'm going to give you peace. But this peace is not the same way the world gives peace. Now, in this day, um, people, when you would depart, you would say, shalom, shalom, which meant that I'm leaving, or peace out, and they would leave peace with them. It's It's just a statement, a colloquial thing that they would say. So Jesus makes the statement, peace, I leave with you, but then he adds this on, my peace, I give you. And then he says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says it again. He's going to wrap it up. Neither let them be afraid. So the promise for his people is presence. And that presence of God is going to feel like peace. But it's not the peace the world gives. It's a different kind of peace. So then the question is, okay, then how does, what's the kind of peace the world gives? How does the world give us peace? Well, we find worldly peace when we push away things uh, that are causing us strife, that's how we find peace in the world. It's a relationship that's broken. It's a person who has hurt you, it's um, a job you've left, it's a school you've left. And the world gives peace by saying, if you remove yourself from that circumstance or remove that circumstance from you, you will find peace. So we run after the world's peace, because that feels like I don't have to walk through sorrow. I don't have to walk through Gethsemane to do that. I can, I can avoid pain by simply pushing pain away. So I pretend it didn't happen or I, I victimize myself and I make the other person the perpetrator. If I just get rid of that person, then I'm going to feel peace. And the truth is we do for a season, don't we? When we remove ourselves from certain situations, we do feel what we would call peace, a calmness, a serenity. But the old statement from the counselor is, wherever you go, there you are. So then it's the next relationship, and it's the next job, and it's the next church, and it's uh, the next um, friendship, it's the next hobby. We try to sort through the way that the world gives peace, and we say, well, if I push that away, then I will find peace. The second way the world gives peace is by pushing things down. We suppress reality. Jesus I don't give peace. I don't, I don't give peace that pushes um, danger away. I don't give peace that pushes strife away. I also don't give peace that just pushes it down. And so we bury it. We, as particularly men, we bury it. Just got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I got to fight through this. I'll just, I'll get through it. And we do it with effort and striving. And so we busy ourselves to push down what we're feeling. Maybe you got a bad diagnosis from your doctor. And so you had a season of of grief, and then you're like, all right, what do we do? So now you're more active. You're working harder. You're more on edge because you're pushing down the sorrow. You're pushing down the darkness. We do it through busyness. We do it with alcohol and drugs. Some prescribed and some illegal. The way the world gives peace is if you just numb it, you're going to be fine. We do it through Netflix. We do it through pornography. We do it through relationships. But again, we know over time, that thing continues to rise to the surface, and you've got to push harder and pile more on and pile more on to get there. Jesus doesn't give peace like that. He gives his peace because the peace That he gives is his presence. And true peace is only found in the presence of God. But we're prone to wander. And so when the rug is pulled out from under us, we blame God and we run from him instead of running towards him. How could you? The peace that is offered to us is true peace found in the presence of God. And more than anything, more than understanding why this happened, more than strategies of how to fix whatever it is that happened, more than the safety of the upper room, we need the presence of God. A.W. Tozer says that our increasing restlessness is caused by being away from God's presence. You wanna know why we feel restless? Because we're away from God's presence. We want the pleasures of God without the presence of God. Okay, then just give us the Father. Show us how to get to the end. What we learned here, though, through John chapter 14, and here's the kicker for us, the presence of God is revealed through our obedience. You want to feel peace? Be obedient. You want to feel the presence of God? Then do the things that God has called us to do you want to feel the presence of God, then we have to be obedient. There is no true peace through disobedience. It is a lie to say, no, I'm really at peace while you are consisting, persisting in sin. That's a lie. You don't feel peace. You've pushed down your conviction. You've pushed down guilt so that you can coast in a way that feels like nothing is attacking you. That's not peace. That's not peace. That's ignorance. It's not peace. You don't find peace through disobedience. That's the peace the world gives. True peace is only found through obedience. So maybe there's some of us today that are in the upper room where the rug has been pulled out from under us. We were riding a high and it just feels like everything fell apart for us. The flesh inside of us is going to push towards the world's peace because it's cheap, because it doesn't cost you anything. So we can pretend, we can push down, we can medicate, we can distort, we can distract, and find some pseudo peace that for those of us who have lived long enough would tell you that's not worth it. You're going to waste years of your life. And there's some of us who the, um, this moment has hit <clears throat> in the upper room, and we're out, man. We're out. But we've also been in church long enough to know that we can't just say that we're out. And so we're going to say churchy things like, no, I really feel like I have peace here. I really feel like there's peace in my heart. You don't have peace in disobedience. It's a lie of the enemy. Peace is only found in the presence of God. Jesus continues in verse 28, You've heard me say that I'm going away, but I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. What a powerful statement. Verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me. I am obedient so that the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go from here. Go bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. I don't know where um, you find yourself today. If you find yourself in that upper room or feel feels like the, the rug's been pulled out from under you, I want to shepherd your heart in a few ways right now, and one is this: you can't stay there. You can't stay in that disbelief. You can't stay in that denial forever. You can't fight to stay in this in this perceived safety of the upper room. You can't. You will wilt and die. We have to rise and go from here. I just, there are some of us in the room today who were fighting to stay, in, it's safer here. It's safer here. If I just don't acknowledge it, I don't, I just pretend it didn't happen. I keep medicating. I keep Netflixing it away. I keep um, drinking it away. I, I busy myself. I, I work myself so that I don't have to think about it. You cannot stay there. And I know to rise and go from there feels perilous, and it feels deadly, and it feels ominous. But you don't go alone. You go with the presence of God in obedience. So I'm just going to pray over us today that we would sense his presence in a way that's um, purifying and that gives us power for the days ahead. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of it. Thank you for the way that you have oriented our lives in such a way that you have, um, you've built our lives and constructed our lives in ways that echo the same things that we see in Scripture. And so that Scripture isn't a textbook to be memorized. It's not um, some sort of knowledge that we hold um, to make us feel above other people. It's a life to be lived. And God, there are people in our room, in our church today, who um, have had this moment in the upper room where the rug has been pulled out from under them. And the temptation is to seek peace the world's way, which means to pretty much stay here. God, I'm just I'm, I'm begging that you would empower them through your Spirit, through your presence, uh, the words of John 14, 31, that they would rise and leave. There's a Gethsemane coming. There's a Calvary coming. There's also an empty tomb coming. There's an Ascension coming and a Holy Spirit coming as well. So for those of us who have lived the experience, God, help us to be bold in sharing it. For those of us who need your presence, God, help us to walk in it. For those of us who are um, running towards disobedience to find some kind of false peace, God, would you push us towards obedience? And in doing so, may we find your presence there like you've promised. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, um, there is no peace in your heart. So you've tried to cover over whatever anxiety and struggle and despair you're feeling, um, and you've, you've deceived yourself pretty well because we're good at it. But when you lay your head down at night and when there's nothing to distract you, what rises to the surface is that you're not in the presence of God. That's what you're feeling. And all of us, our humanity is hardwired to get back to Eden, get back to the garden in the presence of God, and you can through jesus who is the way the truth and the life if you would just believe that he is that you would find your heart at rest again with your creator i want to encourage you to take steps in that way steps towards belief trusting in him